Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today I'm so happy to have in the studio here on this sunny, beautiful Michigan day, Zilka Joseph. Zilka, welcome. <laughs> Hi, T. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, it's grand to see you and welcome back because this is, this is your, you're a friend of the show, second time coming second on. Second visit, that's right. I was here for Lands I Live In a few years ago, oh, a good few years was ago, Was it 2008? I was, I was looking, probably, trying probably. to look back a bit to see. Probably, because I was still doing my MFA. That's right. And it was kind of midway. Yeah. Yes, very exciting. Well, Thanks. it's it's good. I've seen you in the meantime, but mm -hmm, it's great mm -hmm. to have you back um, with the headphones on uh, and in the studio and with your latest book just out um, this April with Wayne State University Press, mm -hmm. Sharp Blue Search of Flame. Correct. Um, so we've got, we're going to hear some poems right. from the book today. And so I'm excited because this is my first full length collection, so... I'm I'm very very excited about that because you have three other books, right? Like three chap books. Uh, would it two. Be? two two chap books two, and then one that's in collaboration. Or? Uh, that was a book of with photographs of dance and pictures from India, and a collaboration with uh, another artist and writer and a dancer oh well so. let's well and let's <laughs> talk about that one a little bit too because right. i don't think we talked about that okay. one back in 2008 um <laughs> so before we go any further though i'll read your bio on the back of the book and also many thanks to christina stonehill at wayne state university mm -hmm. press for sending me an advanced copy of your book so i felt very very honored to have it Zilka Joseph teaches creative writing and is an independent editor and manuscript coach. Her chapbooks, Lands I Live In and What Dread, were nominated for a Pen America and a Pushcart Prize, respectively. She was awarded a Zell Fellowship, a Hopwood Prize, and the Elise Choi Lee Scholarship from the Center for the Education of Women from the University of Michigan. Zilka, it's good to see you back here. And the book is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It's got mm -hmm. such heft, too. Mm -hmm. A lot of poems in this book. How many years, would you say, was this book then in the making? Um, I would say this, this, this is kind of a, a coming together of almost two different manuscripts because I've been writing for so long and I wasn't able to get a book published for quite a while. So actually one manuscript sort of morphed into the other. So while I still have the second manuscript, which I'm hoping will become my second book, <laughs> this one sort of came together and then more poems got added on. So I would say this particular manuscript probably um, came together in, let's say, the last four years. And when you say morphed, Zilka, like what what made up the spine of the book and then how did it morph? Could you talk us through some sure. of the sort of the 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 birth of the book in okay. a way? Okay. Um I think there were so many poems that had the motif of animals or yes. nature and that runs very strongly in my work because I think it's so organic to who I am and my interest in, in nature and the environment. So I think that came very naturally to me. And 
then when because we have sharks, we yes, have bees, yes. we have many different yes, kinds and of birds. birds. And the yes. crow comes back right through. He, you know, the sound of the cawing echoes almost through the book. So that itself, I think, comes from lived experience as well as memory, because in India, uh, crows and sparrows abound. So your life in some way or the other is impacted. They're in the window, they're at the window, they're, they're coming in to steal something from your table. They're all characters, real, real characters. Even so the sparrows? Or, even the or, sparrows okay. you start recognizing because these are, most of them are house sparrows. So they get in your house and try and nest at the top of your fans, in the ventilators. Oh, that's in so a poem. So nature <laughs> just becomes part of everything. And I think it, there's so much of just observing animals or the you know creatures of the animal kingdom that uh, I grew up with because my, my parents were both animal lovers, my dad particularly. So I think that's where some of that initial interest comes from. And your book is dedicated to both of your parents that's and to right. John. That's right. That's right. So th- I was going to sort of focus these poems not just on the animal poems, but you know how human nature is part of what we see in animals too and vice versa. And then the themes of dance or the elements seem to sort of just come together very naturally. And um, I had been writing um, poems after my mother passed, but many of them were, you know, just going through the grief and coming to terms with her loss. And some thank you, uh, T. And um, uh, and it's always very difficult when your parents and family are, you know, on the other side of two oceans. So it it is, you deal with a lot of things in the travel there and back, and then sort of wrapping your brain around this person's never being there again. You know. So um, I I think a lot of the the longer poems you'll see in these collections came from that sort of uh, dealing with that with that loss, but they seem to fit very naturally into um, the the whole sense of search of the soul's journey of of um, just trying to understand this universe and the forces within it. So I. Th- think that's where I, I brought them in and sort of wove them into the fabric of, of the book. And was it something that you felt like these poems, because you were writing these longer poems, mm-hmm. you saw then how they they would be sort of neighbors or part of this, 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 the, the natural uh, world of these, this one manuscript, or was it something where, um, because it is, it's interesting to think of that moment when a book shifts or mm-hmm. change, or when mm-hmm. a manuscript mm-hmm. changes because it's becoming the, Correct. the book. Correct. Um, I'm not sure whether length really played a part of that, but I did think a lot about the fact that um, longer poems may not be very popular because people have opinions about them, you know. And but but I really did want to have as much variety as I could in this book so that people could enjoy different forms and different rhythms and different moods in the book. 
And that's why I thought it would actually make it richer by adding that dimension, not just of the longer poems or the longer lines or the more prose-like uh, utterances that, that you see in the book. But I, I thought it would just make it much richer to bring in something that was a more, with more sustained voice and line. You know, and because I do have several short lyrics which are also very intense and dense. So I thought this would be a very nice way of combining um, almost a different art form, if you'd like to look at it that way. A long poem is, is a, you know, a, a different form. And um, I thought it would be a nice way to add that voice to the book. And, and the music works differently in a longer poem. Correct. And, and also the way you see it on the page. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it's, it's um, the way I wrote many of these poems, had, I had to rewrite them because when they were actually put in the format of the, the print, the lines broke completely differently. Oh, so I had to re-envision some of these poems so that I, would, I liked the way they looked on the page and that they still had um, the effect that I wanted the lines or the words, you know, the w end words to have, or, uh, you know, whether the, the lines were justified or not justified. You know, one doesn't think of these things when one is writing the poem, but when the book actually was put together and uh, uh, the galleys were sent to me, then I had to sit down and rework a lot of the longer poems, or the poems that had longer lines. <laughs> And did you find that for some of those in the reworking of it, like to go back into them, mm -hmm. did you find that in some ways these poems were made stronger or did you have to resist an impulse to say, couldn't we have a larger format? I did. I did. I actually, I said, couldn't we have one with so much beautiful art in it? Couldn't we just have this, you know, more, art, you know, larger format and allow the lines to sort of have these longer pages to, so that they could sort of unfurl <laughs> but once I you know once I I was uh, reconciled to the fact that I, I had to somehow rework these poems so that they would be effective again um, I just took on that challenge and worked with it and I kind of had to let go the effects that I I, I don't think they lost anything, and I don't really know if they gained anything more because I had to reformat them. But I like to think so, because ultimately it's a new form. You know, it, it's there, but it's a new form. Can you tell me a little bit about the elements of dance? Because mm -hmm. at the top of the program we heard a song mm -hmm. by Shakti, and Correct. this is one of your favorite groups. Yes, it is. is this, so would this be some of the element of dance that you mentioned? Um, uh, music and dance is very much, again, part of me growing up in India, whether it was Western music or Eastern music. And Shakti is beautiful because it's a, it's a fusion of both. And as far as uh, Indian classical dance is concerned, um, my mother used to dance Bharatanatyam when she was a young woman. And there are a couple of poems in the book that, um, that reflect that. And coming back to uh, the collaboration that I mentioned that I was involved with, with the photographer Charlie Brodsky from Carnegie Mellon University, and also with Sriyoshi Day, who is a proponent of Odyssey dance. So there were photographs, and there was, um, I wrote to several 
photograph that Charlie had taken of the hand gestures of that dance. And there's a poem in the book called Mudras, would The Language of Hands. Oh, so maybe when we come back from the break, would you like to read that one? Certainly. I would love to do that. And is sure. it is so, but what were you going to say about it, Sylvia? Uh, what I was going to say is that the title of the book emerged from one of those poems as I was searching for the title and, and the book is really about you know the search of the soul the soul's journey the life's journey and um, I found that line and then it sort of it was on my top of my list and finally I did choose that line and it emerged from one of the the, the, the poems, poems yes about the yes. dancing uh, and so and this this what we're the title of the book, just in case you're just joining us now, uh, Sharp Blue, Search of Flame. And when you said, could you read the title for us, Silka? Sure. Sharp Blue, Search of Flame. Okay. And before we go on break, you'll be reading tomorrow at Literati mm-hmm. um, with two other poets, Michael Delp and M.L. Liebler on 7 p.m. 7 p.m. at Literati, a a wonderful place to go Mm -hmm, hear poems mm -hmm. and buy books and have a cup of coffee. Absolutely. So that'll uh, that'll be a great event. And these are two poets also from Wayne State University Press. That Right, and Michael Delp is um, retired from Interlaken, and uh, I've never met him, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. So tomorrow, 7 p.m., Literati, and today on Living Writers, Silka Joseph is here in the studio with me. Her book, Sharp Blue, Search of Flame. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Zilka Joseph is here in the studio. Her first book of poems out with Wayne State University Press, Sharp Blue Search of Flame, and what a book it is. Um, We've got the Liz behind the glass today on this beautiful 
beautiful day. And we're just, we're also talking before the break that Zilka will be reading at Literati um, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock um, with Michael Delp and M.L. Liebler. So it could be a, a night of poems yes. there at Literati. Yes. Will you, will you um, give us a poem for now? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, we were ch- talking just before this about dance, and I thought this would be a nice opportunity to read from this uh, experiment that uh, was this wonderful collaboration between a photographer, a dancer, and um, a writer. So uh, this poem is called Mudras, Language of Hands, and it's a three-part poem that um, uh, each poem accompanied a photograph of hand gestures. So the poem was actually inspired by the photograph and then sort of told its own own little story. So some of the images are quite abstract, but it also tries to explain what dance does that is tell a story with gestures and fingers and and also the space between hands that that creates an image and this is also a a dance that you do so you have this known body experience as well of the dance i don't dance any any of the indian classical dances but dance is something i love so i i would go watch and i have some basic knowledge of what some of these things mean so uh, I'm familiar with, with what the mudras are, which are the hand gestures, which symbolize certain things. So this poem sort of tells the story, and I think you'll recognize the, the title uh, line that, that comes uh, in the second section. So I'll go ahead and read um, the poem. Mudras, language of hands, written to accompany a triptych of photographs depicting hand gestures of classical Indian dance. And more specifically, this was for Odissi dance, which is from a state called Orissa. One, speak then to me what tales these fingers tell, the waking, the calling, the eye, body, words carved in air between the lines of the hands. And what I've done is, the rest of the poem, I've inverted the lines so that they go backwards and still tell a story. So, of the hands between the lines, carved in air, words, body, the eye, the waking, the calling, these fingers tell what tales speak then to me. Two, clap of wing, Dear call, do you hear butterflies? Fingertip language on cave walls awake. What roams, moonless? A buffalo turns his head, the breathing jungle. Feelers a quiver, they wait. Listen, heartbeat of cricket song, shell of silence. My palms press back the darkness. See this lamp I make, how deep its bowl, the longing soul, how tall its tongue, its sharp blue search of flame. Three. Oh, my mouth has many tongues, myriad voices, swift the blood in my veins. Like hawks, my wrists dive and soar, make love to the night, 
My arms become ten snakes. My three eyes of lightning strike the earth. The drummer drums in my skin. The dance begins again. Thank you, Silka. Thank you. That's lovely. The dance begins again. And um, it, it also symbolizes that dance is so much part of, um, you know, the dance of creation and the dance of destruction that you see in, in many cultures. So it's sort of, that's why you have the sense of the palms that, that become the lamp, that you can shape it into a lamp and that's then you can shape image. the flame. And so that poem particularly draws on these images that are created by the fingers. And and you said that your your mom had danced these classical dances then. Correct. Zika. She was she learned Bharatnatyam, which is uh, uh, widely um, practiced in India, but it comes from Tamil Nadu in in South India, and uh, she used to dance with a dance troupe on stage for many years and um, I think you know part of what my poem expresses is how um, ultimately you know she had to give it up so that's the but story I tell in that poem in an imagined way of course and then the flame though is it perhaps could be one of the flames that we feel that is burning still mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I, I think that image is is just beautiful because the image of the lamp or the flame is such a globally understood image of of light of life of immortality energy energy, eternity so many things and and then the other side of flame can also be destruction uh, purification you know um, something that uh, cleansing so th- there are many aspects of, of uh, flame or um, just the sense of um, uh, sort of search or, cl- you know, that, that's why I, I think flame and search for me go together because it rises upwards and it, it sort of consumes the air and it's like it, it's, it's burning. It's burning with passion, light, life. I think I'm coming back to the same images, really, but that's what I mean. Well, it's lovely. It's, and, and to think also we were um, looking at the book, Zilka, images play a role in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a photograph mm-hmm. of your mom as Correct. well in, yes. in here. Um, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about your choice? Like, Were you able to say... This is how, when you were designing the book, did you say, I have an, a photograph of my mother? Was that part of it? Or was it an invitation by the press that there could be images used? Or how did this element become part of the book? Sure, I'll talk about that a little bit. I think um, right from the beginning in my discussions with the press, uh, we decided there would be artwork in the book, images in the book. And um, for the cover, I had sent them this photograph of uh, my mother, which you see inside the book, and you see the eyes at the top of the page. This was a photograph of my mother, which I believe is her engagement photograph, her engagement to my father. And um, that is probably the only photograph I have of my mother as a very young woman. 
and uh, I was fortunate to to have um, a copy. But um, uh, the photograph that was put into the book itself, that idea came a little later, because I kind of actually just wanted a silhouette of it. And, you know, while each, in fact, each of the, the pictures that are there or the artwork that is there in the book was discussed with, with I discussed with Bryce, Bryce uh, Shemansky, this wonderful uh, designer who put the book together, not, not the cover. The cover was uh, Andrew. Um, he sent me all the artwork and then I talked with him saying this one worked or could you move this one or could we have a different wheel here or you know something like that so that's how we both sort of talked through this and I said oh you know let, let's leave this page blank or you know let's let's add something here so it was a collaboration with him really that feels choices. very lucky very lucky very very lucky because we were both able to um uh, you know, I could express if if there was like too much somewhere or too little somewhere, and we we did I think two or three different um, combinations till we decided on this final one. And and Zilka, um, with could we talk a little bit about how India is present in mm -hmm. the book and in the stories and and the weaving? Sure, um, I think. You know, when you say this, this is a book about India, I don't think this is something like that. I think India is woven into every, Cause, almost cause every Michigan's poem in the book. In here of too. course, <laughs> of course, it's 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 the world that I've lived in. It's the people I've met. It's the animals I know. It's it's. Um, uh, you know the joys and the sorrows. So I mean, it it it's not specifically about a country. It's it's specifically about the human condition, no matter where where you are or where I've traveled or the people I've met, and the people who have been in my life and whom I've lost. So um, definitely, the scenes move throughout the book, and um, they are so intrinsic to my experience. And that is why India and the U.S. sort of weave in through, in and out through this book, as do the animals that populate <laughs> my book, or my life for that matter. So I think it's a much wider canvas, and I think all these different things make part of that, that larger painting that I'm trying to sort of convey. And when did the shark become part of the story? Um, I think the sh the shock poem was very much present a long time ago, <laughs> and uh, was very much part of the sense of what lies hidden, you know, in 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 worlds, what what's undiscovered or what people try not to think about, but they're there, you know, and and I think it it came in very beautifully with the images of. Um, our subconscious or, or things we try and deny or pretend are not there but somehow these lurking figures sort of come back and um, so I, I do have images of, of motherhood and whales as well the sense of 
the whale calf or the orcas that are surrounding the boat and the sounds and the, 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 the hissing and the steam that comes from them. So what I really want to bring in is the element of the sea, the element of water, and all the things that live within that, that world too. And why is that, Silka? Uh, I think because it's part of this world, and elements are so much part of what I talk about in this book. So even though we have fire, we also have water and air that weave in and out of this story. Wonderful. We're going to take a short break. Today on Living Writers, Zilka Joseph is here. We've got her book from Wayne State University Press, hot off the presses, out this month, Sharp Blue, Search of Flame. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, I'm sure glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today on the program. Zilka Joseph joins me in the studio with her book of poems, Sharp Blue, Search of Flame. Um, really such a lovely book just to have in your hands and to hold. Thank um, you. People can pick up their own copy tomorrow mm -hmm. at Literati at 7 o'clock when you're yes. reading reading poems from Sharp Blue, Search mm -hmm. of Flame. Um, so, uh, Zilka, we have been, so one of, I think, 
one of our themes today and one of your book's themes mm -hmm. is dance and mm -hmm. this coming and weaving through right. um, and the, the natural world, of course, mm -hmm. and, and um, those that you, you love and who are with you and, and who are gone. Um, let's, let's return to the rhythms of the dance for a moment, if you sure. don't mind, and hear, hear another poem. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I'll read a poem called The Bharat Natyam Dancer. And this was inspired by my vision of my mother dancing because I'd never ever watched her perform. She was always my mother, my you know, a housewife and did all the things a mother did. I'd seen her dance with my father on the dance floor, but that was like the foxtrot or, you know, ballroom dancing, but I'd never seen her perform. So I had this image of her on stage dancing and I thought what would have what would have happened if her career in dance had blossomed and that's where this poem really came from and then I brought in the god of dance Natraj Shiva because that is the image of the, the ultimate dance of destruction that that you see at the end of the world so I kind of brought that into the poem the Bharat Natyam dancer Imagine this. It's Shiva's Rudra Tandav my mother performs. Frenzied dance of destruction. Her lotus feet scorching the earth with flame. Not the great god's three wild locks or river Ganga bursting through matted curls, but her thick black rope of hair whipping the backs of her knees. Her sari pleats open and close, the pallo's silken sweep bound in a belt of gold. How thunderous her gold eyes, how pure the gestures of her ever-changing mudras. But where was your fury, O oh sweet mother? Natraj, where your protective flame? Did your three eyes freeze unweeping and deaf your holy ears to her? to the sounds of a hundred brass gungurus thrumming on her ankles. No, no, you heard her feet, the bells, the beat of lightning feet. You heard, you heard her desire, you heard her steps, her dance, shatter Mount Kailash, your home, your god abode, your manly kingdom. You heard the audience roar and knew all along her father's will that he would say to her, no more. The tongue, the tongue of every ankle bell ripped out, her heart a tomb, her art, her fame, turned to cinders by you, you jealous, jealous lord of dance. Thank you, Selka. Thank you. I can hear how important sound is mm -hmm. within the framework of that one poem, even. Right. And the repetition, because there's so much of the feet slapping the ground and the repetitive movements. So I try to try to give create some of that effect in the poem. So I'm glad it came through. And and when you're so and when you're working on, for example, this poem, are you reading it aloud during the process? Are you what what are what is happening for you in the in the attention to sound that's there? Um, 
I always read my poems aloud after they're done, and particularly if I'm using um, a sense of rhythm or sound or repetition, it it's very essential that I read it aloud to myself and see what the effects are. And also, when I read it, how the words feel in my mouth and whether something feels... Because sometimes when you write a line, it, it sounds very passionate, but when you read it out, it's not the same thing. And it, it helps me to pace my reading. It helps me to, to give the breaks between words. And, um, and then I also get to use words that, um, that are very original because I, I use the word hundred brass gungrus, and those are the little tiny bells that are sewn onto the full leg gear that uh, makes those thrumming and jingling sounds that creates this, this uh, um, you can almost make it as loud as a wind roaring through a room when they actually sit and they, they vibrate the feet. So I think that was what was sort of blowing through the poem for me, the sense of anger, fire, this dance of destruction, which would ultimately really lead to the destruction of her as an artist because she would not be allowed to dance and, you know, get married and all of that. So sort of that was the background to the, the poem. And, and what did she think of you uh, um, as an artist, as a poet, uh, your mother? I think I you know, th I know they were very proud of me. They were always very proud of me as a teacher. I used to teach uh, at St. James High School in India for uh, six or seven years, a boys' school. And I still have many students who are in touch with me. Now they have their families and children, and I s they send me photographs. And th this is a, a very loving, loving world. And um, both my parents were very fascinated that I... I you know, started writing and publishing. And though they were not literary people, they they kind of were very fascinated that I actually had begun to write and that I had a book. Because lands I live in, I had a um, May book Apple launch. Press. Correct. May Apple Press that did a beautiful job, again, of the cover collaboratively. Um, and Judith Kerman is, is really, a, you know, a... a, a perfectionist and I it was really great to work with her because we came up with something that really pleased both of us and um, I actually had a book launch of uh, lands I live in in India and I got reviews and I had newspapers with photographs of me so I think that they had this sense I think to some extent it was maybe they were a little afraid because it suddenly seemed very different from the world they knew of you know what they knew of me and but I knew they were very proud and excited and they wa my dad wanted to read everything my mom was was like oh this is nice it's beautiful and um I think I shared lands I live in with them because it was my very first publication but I knew in my heart of hearts that I wanted my writing and my literary work to sort of be a little different. I mean, I wanted it to be separate from my family because I felt what I was doing was, you know, people feel as if you're writing about them specifically when it's really you are writing stories and you are making it mythology. 
So there's a big difference between, you know, say writing memoir and writing poetry. You can have elements of all these things in poetry, but for the person who's reading this, sometimes it can be interpreted very differently. So, but those are things you have to just give to the world and leave it, you know. You can't um, worry too much about how things will be interpreted. You just want to make good art and beauty and give it to the world. So that was my goal. Will you read us another poem, Silka? All right, I will do that. Excuse me. Um, since we talked a little bit more about the dance theme, I thought it'd be interesting to bring in um, a poem about my childhood and music. And music, again, was very much part of our lives. We, In those days, we had the turntable and we had LPs, albums, <laughs> which we, we love. <laughs> we still have them here at WCBN. I, I am <laughs> always excited to see that because it feels real to me. Um, so this poem is called Turntable. Uh, it does lead into a little bit of a different story about um, illness, but uh, I think the poem will express that clearly. Turntable. When Dad brought the silver-gray Garrod home, I rushed to see, breathe the holy plastic oil smell, feel the shiny steel, the springy record bed. I was six. Beatles it was from morning till night, the big green apple spinning madly, the 45 stacked atop the magic tower, turning into a swirling black pool, ring within ring, rhythm ring, racing around. My breath steamed up my pink framed glasses. I watched the stylus lift off, glide and perch like a stiff bird on the inner edge of the record and sink automatically onto the whirling dervish of a disc. Money can't buy me love, it's been a hard day's night. I saw her standing there. I sang while I wrote pages in cursive for mean Mrs. Rice, sang at the table, sang in my sleep. I danced with my teenage sister and brother every night. Our ankles were slender, my moves so fast when I jived. Steps my feet remembered after they brought me back from hospital. Dad carrying me up the stairs, my limbs like dead wood. Thank you, Zilka. Thanks. I'm so... Thank you for reading that one because it, it it's a poem that's... Like you said, it be, it leads to another story mm-hmm. by its end, but at the beginning, it almost feels like a love poem mm-hmm. to a record player. It really is because it, you know, just like the radio back in the day when the turntables became uh, available, especially Garrett was like, you know, was the best back in the day too. So, actually, buying something like that and bringing it home was just so exciting and watching it all happen and and because it was a record changer you could pile the records one on top and that itself was like you could just sit and watch that for hours you know so I tried I I think that's that's really bringing back a very very deep part of my childhood and and the, the the joy and the beauty of just having fun in the night but playing the music and 
dancing around with my brother and sister till such point as um, you know I was ill and then couldn't walk for for quite some time. So and, and that's why the turn at the end is to to sort of symbolize how quickly things can change. And from that joy of the freedom of the movement Correct. and the bodies known. Right. Um, right. the dance and right. memory And the feet remembers, the feet yes. itself. Because what happens when you aren't able to walk is you are willing your feet to move, but they don't. And that that's the kind of tension with that sense of something that can move so freely. But your mind still keeps moving and there's some memory there, but the feet can't move anymore. So I think that's the tension I was trying to create. And you do. You do. Um, Today on Living Writers, Zilka Joseph is here. Her book, Sharp Blue, Search of Flame, out this month with Wayne State University Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Redemption songs. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Silka Joseph is here. Her book, Sharp Blue, Search of Flame, um, out this month with Wayne State University Press. A beautiful book indeed. Um, And we've been lucky to hear some poems. Um, And you, listeners out there in the world, um, tomorrow at 7 o'clock, Literati, is hosting an event where Zilka will be reading. Zilka Joseph will be reading with Michael Delp and M.L. Liebler. And so you can go and and hear more poems. Um, but for now, we have Zilka. Luckily, lucky to have Zilka in the studio. And oh, I'm you thrilled mind? to be here. Thank oh. you. <laughs> well, let's, can we turn a bit to 
your Michigan poems. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Michigan flows in and out of this book because I have several bird poems that bring Michigan in. And I have a poem called Harbingers, which brings in the crows in Calcutta, as well as the crow that would watch me get into my car right here in Auburn Hills before I moved to Ann Arbor. And then, how can we not talk about Ann Arbor and not talk about its crows? They are an important presence here, out by the fields and right in the city when they come to roost. And you can watch them sometimes throughout the night because if they have s settled in the trees all around you, you can hear and actually see them fly throughout the night in these little swirls and they settle and they st so to me they are a very potent force of nature and um again bec i i think i mentioned that uh, you know living in calcutta crows are very prominent they're all around you and they they you can actually identify certain characters because they have um, certain qualities and they'll come at a particular time and call at your window and, you know, ask for food or whatever. And they know so. you too. And they know you too. And if you're not there, sometimes they'll make a bigger racket, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, um, you know, I my mother would feed them sometimes because, you know, scraps from the table, scraps from the kitchen. So there, there were all these personalities that, that um, were very familiar. So this poem is actually dedicated to Ann Arbor, because should I say the crows of Ann Arbor that I love as much as the crows anywhere else. It's called A Gathering. To drown this dying November dusk, the crows have arrived in locust numbers, come to rend the leaden air with their incessant cawing. Caws fall thick as arrows, rise up again in unintelligible words, expounding great woe or wisdom. Maybe tales of diaspora followed by light evening gossip, the aged offering rules of survival, more clouds of verbose souls blow in, rest, then pass, rest, then pass. A perpetually changing guard, a host of shadow angels, symmetry, settling, shattering. Such raucous opera, such concentric circles of travelers, a frantic vertigo before winter shuts us down like a tomb full of worms and dirt. Is there no hope? Voices rasp high and low, rusty trumpets full of secrets, See how they heave themselves up like one brutal animal, then break into strings and whirls and curls, cloud calligraphy, a vortex collapsing. Tonight the fingernail moon hangs on the lean beak of the horizon. In the half-light they stir and stream, live flowing obsidian lava pulsing in on one mighty river from the edge of another world. Doom? Death? Oh, these daggers of memory, visiting spirits. Yes, these are my prophets, my ancestors, the living and the dead come to visit, remind my history arriving. See this fresh murder settling in the oaks outside my window, full of feisty young bloods, sure to jive and jibe at the stars till dawn. Old souls among them, 
tilt their heads and watch. May their ancient music dwell in the house of these branches and on cruelest days fill my ears with mystery words. My eyes overflow like a cup of wine with the memory of their visit. Let me remember again how they resurrect themselves, how they beat back the wings of silence. I love that one, Zilka. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading that. I feel like for everyone here in Ann Arbor, that was just, that's, and and beyond, Uh, listeners everywhere that know the crows, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how can you not, as you said, (laughs) but especially here, because it's such, it's it's such a time when they come. And And they're a presence, you know, they're an enormous presence, and and you you wonder what they're saying, and what they're doing, and... Why do they want to re- roost right here tonight or whatever? Yes. Know? And is it be? I right. thought it was something where they always came to the west side of town, but perhaps it's all over Ann Arbor mm-hmm. and not just the west side. <laughs> because they come from the fields. They feed in the fields and then they come around the edges of the city. And uh, they're, they're amazing. Because they want to come and interact with the people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. say hello. It, I feel like this poem... And they're intelligent beings. Yes. Extremely intelligent beings. So I have great respect for them. <laughs> they're problem solvers. They can think, you know, so... Yes, several. I've seen those PBS shows, too, where they have the twigs and they can think several steps Mm -hmm, ahead mm -hmm, to get mm -hmm. the thing that they want to eat. Um, In the poem itself, I feel like it's it's not a dark poem. It's a poem that's Mm -hmm. it's for all because Mm -hmm. it's a one a poem of wonderment. Um, Thank you. So what were you going to say? I was also I was just going to mention that, you know, it's it's this constant shift of dark and light things that that have perhaps ominous meanings but the fact is they are they are life they're a force of life you know and uh, so I think that's what I also am playing with in the poem what's death and what's life and what's darkness and what's light and you do Thank you, Zilka. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking with me today on Living Writers. It's been a pleasure, T, anytime. And an honor, always, always. (laughs) Um, Before we sign off today, um, and everyone, you've been listening to to poems from Zilka Joseph's book of poems, Sharp Blue Search of Flame, out with Wayne State University Press. before I say au revoir uh, for today, I wanted to thank everyone way back in February when we had our fundraiser show. Um, thank you so much for calling in, um, especially George and Joanne Cooper, Janice Hetzel, Sally Hetzel, The Liz, Bennett Stein, Louis Ciccarelli, Del Villarreal, <laughs> and Katie Hartsock. Um, thank you so much to everyone. Um, the song that we're going out on today, everybody, um, is by George Cooper with co-writer and producer Brent Bryan. Um, And also Alec Cooper from the Third Coast Kings is on sax. Um, So thank you to longtime listeners uh, of of Living Writers and WCBN, George and Joanne Cooper. Um, Here's Valentine's Day by George Cooper.
And with that, hello and welcome to today's Wednesday edition of the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Morris Fabry. I'm your host on today's show. Uh, first things first, we'll start with a recap of yesterday. The Michigan softball team played a, ho- played a home game against the Michigan State Spartans. They won 8 nothing in five innings. It was a tidy one-and-a-half-hour game. They walked off on the strength of a Terra Blanco two-run home run, uh, and the Wolverines continue their run of good form into the weekend. Uh, you guys have any thoughts on that? First of all, I'm here with Leo Blavin, Will Yang, and Jeremy Parks. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Pretty good. Yeah, you had Brett with you last night. It sounded good. And Broadnax just seemingly sitting there. Yeah. I thought Adam was going to call some of the game. Was he taking pictures? Yeah, he, I think he took a few pictures, but in the end just didn't really want to do anything, which is fine with me. I got to do play-by-play the whole time. It was a lot of fun. If you want to listen to it, you can check out our YouTube channel. It's just WCBN Sports, pretty simply. Uh, but anyway, moving on to national news, the... Uh, I guess hot topics in sports right now revolve around the NFL. First and foremost, uh, I guess I'll get to the most recent topic, which is that Josh Norman, possibly the best cornerback in the league, definitely one of the top cornerbacks in the league of the Carolina Panthers, uh, was just released from the franchise tag. He is now a free agent. It's sent shockwaves rippling throughout the NFL world. Uh, what do you guys make of the decision to release him from the franchise tag? And uh, if you guys have any ideas, where do you think he ends up? So this is extremely rare, almost unprecedented, to remove the franchise tag, especially if it's a player of this magnitude. You know, certain positions, it's more commonplace, especially you'll see occasionally teams franchise tag a kicker or a punter who is in the top five of their league because obviously the way the franchise tag works is is an average salary of the top five players of that position in the league. Cornerback, obviously, that's a big price tag to pay, and Josh Norman certainly earned it at least for one season. There's always concern when it's a guy who produces for just one year, and this truly was a revelation. It was one year Josh Norman playing at an elite level. Norman Island formed literally over one season. The fact that they removed it leads me to believe that there is a big story about to break about him, that there's a major character issue because at this point to determine that the cap space isn't there, I, I, I find